Good evening, everyone. My name is Maggie Keller. I'm part of the table team here. If you have ever gotten a text from 33222, that was me. <laughs> I'm honored. I'm excited to be with you tonight. Matt kicked off this new series of ours last week. We're calling it, I Wish Someone Had Told Me. And I am not one to shy away from a really good preachy sermon, but that's not tonight. Tonight's going to be more of a story. My favorite part of working in communications has always been the storytelling. I find it really hard to dislike someone, even people that I find very unlikable, when they sort of open up their story and invite me into it. So tonight I'd like to share with you part of mine. If you have known me, even for a hot second, you've probably heard part of this. I'm pretty open about my family and church of origin, but I think there's some great takeaways tonight, and I'd like to share it with you. I grew up, as they say, in the church, which is to say that neither of my parents were on staff, but I spent many, many hours every week inside the church building. Sunday morning Sunday school and Sunday morning church service and Sunday afternoon junior Bible quiz and Sunday evening service and Wednesday kids clubs and every youth group activity as I got older. I was a really earnest kid. I was the kind that felt more comfortable around adults than my peers. And looking back, I think a big part of that was because I was desperate to earn approval. I craved approval. Even as a kid, I still struggle with that. I believed that God loved me, but I put limits on that love. I believed that God created me, but I also felt that I had the potential to disappoint God. And I felt I did disappoint God often. I was so insecure about my standing with God that I was the kid who raised my hand in church every week to invite Jesus into my heart again because I wasn't sure that last week it had really stuck. I was fixated on the rituals and the habits that my church taught me were the hallmarks of the Christian life. And when I failed to really have a daily quiet time with God when I was 10 years old, I became really fixated on sin. And I was convinced that sin separated me from God. Back around that age, I kept a journal. And when I was 12, I remember writing this entry in which I wrote my name on one side of the page, and I wrote God on the other side, and then I circled this void in the middle. I wrote about how God felt distant. I felt that God was really far away from me. And I was sure that it, be, it was because I wasn't focusing more on God and, and I was not being in the word daily. I resolved that I was going to work harder and I was going to be nicer to the people around me. I was a pretty intense kid. <laughs> that inner critic, that voice has always been very loud for me. But I honestly believed that God moved away from me because of my brokenness. So I repented of sin over and over again. And my tears were very real. I wanted forgiveness, but I just didn't feel forgiven. And so I kept asking. When God looked at me, I was convinced he just saw a, a broken child. And I felt like a disappointment. And so I tried to put on a show for everybody else. I would sit in the front row of church, and I wanted to show my earnestness, and I joined the student leaders group and started showing up to church an hour before my family every Sunday so that we could be mentored by our youth group leader. I was performing. I was putting up this sort of 
fake holy exterior and I felt like a fraud. I believed it, but I didn't feel like it was working. I was really afraid to bring my whole real self to my church family. I wasn't alone, of course, but because I wasn't talking about it, I didn't hear anybody else saying anything like it, and so I just, I kept up appearances. Because I was so sure that I was a fraud, I looked to others to confirm that I was, in fact, worthy of being close to God and welcome among God's people, especially those in leadership. I did just about anything to get noticed and praised by people in leadership, by teachers and pastors and youth group leaders. I hung on their every word. I remember sitting on the front row of the the sanctuary and scribbling notes in, in every margin of my bulletin, and then afterwards getting all puffed up with this ugly sense of pride because my youth pastor saw my notes, and he held it up to our small group, and he said, this this is how you should listen to a sermon. As you can imagine, it didn't win me very many friends. <laughs> it actually kind of earned me uh, the nickname teacher's pet, but I just... I didn't care. The, the people around me, the adults in my life, getting their approval, it numbed that thirst I had to be close to God. And that always felt out of reach. Getting approval from adults was way more attainable than getting approval from my peers. The bullying started in sixth grade. I had just started at a new school, and I worked very hard, and I got good grades. I accidentally branded myself the smart girl, and about two weeks in, a group of girls approached me on the playground, and they said, you know, Maggie, if you got a few more Bs, you'd have a few more friends. Before every year of middle school, I would find out later, my parents met with the administration of the school, and together they would try to come up with a plan to make sure Maggie doesn't get bullied this year. It didn't work. I didn't have a real close group of friends until I was in high school. But it didn't bother me because the adults around me made me feel loved and special and cared for and they spoke highly of me. And because I felt worthy by the adults around me, I didn't have to think about whether or not God thought I was worthy. I just totally masked that thirst. I think when we're young, we begin to form what they call a worldview this way of sort of understanding the world by piecing together what we know to be true about who we are and and other people. I can picture myself as a child sort of picking up all these pieces, you know, this is who I am, and this is what counts as family, and this is the right kind of politics, and this is what my body was made for. Everything else that I believed to be true was undergirded by my faith, And one of those pieces I was puzzling together was who God is. And God looked like me. God spoke my language. God was an old white man. I mean, even our pictures of Jesus, he was white. And I have enough self-compassion now to be able to look back on that time and see that the pieces I was trying to fit together, it didn't form a puzzle, it was a prison. And it wasn't me inside. I had built a box in which to contain God. I was a kid. I was just trying to wrap my mind around the infinite so that I could find my place in it all. But in that quest, I put limits on a limitless God. And so that was the box I carried with me when I left my family home. I remember moving into college the, the weekend my parents moved me in and 
as we said goodbye, I put my hands on my mom's shoulders, and I said, don't worry, mom, this is a safe place. And I didn't mean safe physically. I meant safe ideologically. My parents and I had developed this fear of the agenda of higher education. And so we had picked a college that we were confident was not going to interfere or mess with the worldview that I had so carefully cultivated with my family and my community. The first time the box began to splinter was about a week later. <laughs> I was walking up and down the halls of my dorm, and at the beginning of college, what you do is you ask three questions. What's your name, where are you from, and, and what's your major? So I met this young woman. She was tan and athletic and just vibrant, and she said, hi, I'm Steph, and I'm from Minnesota. I thought, oh, finally, somebody I have something in common with. We're going to get along so well because we're from the same state. And so I said, Steph, what's your major? And she said, theology, I'm going to be a pastor with the smile and confidence of an 18-year-old who has yet to walk into a theology classroom full of boys who are thinking, you shouldn't be here. And I was no better. I thought the same thing. Girls can't be pastors. Because I had never seen a woman in the highest levels of church leadership, I did not think it was possible. And yet here was Steph, preparing to devote her life to what I thought women couldn't do. Can they? And something in my box started to splinter. This continued, of course, all throughout college and, and beyond. Every time I met someone whose lived experience didn't, it didn't square with the box that I had built to keep God contained, it just sort of broke apart more. As it turns out, God is love itself, and that love is limitless. The things that I believed about who God was and how God felt about me were all wrong. It was a little bit like finding out that that parent you've always strived to be proud of you has loved you unconditionally all along from the very beginning. Whatever box I had built to hold God, God's bigger. Whatever limits I had put on God's love, it's deeper. However far away I felt from God, God was nearer. And I wish someone had told me to embrace the mystery of a God who is beyond. It's a bit like what I imagine the Samaritan woman felt at the well. Here is this woman whose people have been totally ostracized from the Jews. The Jews said, no, we are God's people, and this is where God can be accessed, in the temple in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans, you aren't welcome. Not only that, she'd also been ostracized from her own people as well. In that patriarchal society, she was regarded as a fallen woman, such that she couldn't even go to draw water from the well with the other women. They didn't want her around. So instead of coming in the cool of the morning, she came in the heat of the afternoon. Watch what happens when a woman who has been told, this is who you are, and this is who God is, and this is where God can be accessed encounters a love without limits. Would you give me a drink? Did you hear me? That's bad, huh? What? You, a Jew. 
Ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come out now in the heat. So you have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I, I'd still like a drink of water if, if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Would. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Wrong story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water. Hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know, Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah, exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit, and the time is coming and is now here that it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes, 
that explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me. I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon, just the heart. <laughs> you promise. I promise. I weep every time I watch that scene because I think I understand what the Samaritan woman felt like. I see myself in her. I see a woman who had tried her very best to play by the rules and still get burned. <laughs> Only until someone else shows up and says that the rules don't matter anymore. The scene you just watched is almost verbatim from John chapter 4 in the message translation. And there's this recurring theme in the passage of water. Jesus asks for water. The woman asks why he's asking for water. Jesus says, well, you should ask me for water. And the woman says, you don't have anything to get water from. It's just, it's a lot of water and a lot of different ways to get it. And there's this book called Selling Water by the River by author and pastor Shane Hips. And in it, he describes the river as that deep joy and that boundless love and the, the indestructible peace that Jesus promises us. But then there's also this merchant who's selling the water, and that's, that's Christianity, that's religion. Sometimes the merchant gets in the way of the water that it wants to provide us. It, it invites us to find the water through these various methods. Make a pilgrimage and renounce all your possessions or pursue justice or profess these certain beliefs. There's nothing wrong with any of those, but, but that is the currency of the merchant, religion. 
The river doesn't require any of that from you. All it wants is your thirst and trust in the one who brings you to the river. You don't need the merchant to get to the river, just like you don't need Christianity to get you to Christ. And I wish someone had told me that the rules don't get you to the river. It's already inside you. As Jesus told the Samaritan woman, the time is coming. In fact, it has already come. Finding out that God loved the Samaritan woman, and not only that, but had come near to her at the well, at the very place where she was most othered, that changed everything for the Samaritan woman. And for us, too. In, in the scriptures, we see the good news as just being for God's people. And the Samaritan woman is where it takes a turn. And Jesus says, no, it's for everyone, Gentiles included. And I think that this is why every Advent season, I get totally wrecked by the idea of Emmanuel, God with us. John 1 says that Jesus put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He got proximate to us. For all my growing up years, I felt that God was far away. He was distant because I wasn't performing well enough. It, and it wasn't until, as an adult, I began to observe Advent that my, my thirst was really put in its proper context. My thirst for nearness to God was not quenched at all by all of my years of striving, not the Bible studies or the scripture I memorized or the mission trips or the true love weights pledges or the fasting and the quiet times. It didn't quench my thirst. My thirst was satisfied when I finally accepted that if Jesus comes to me, he already loved me just as I was. That thirst of mine mirrors the thirst of God's people who are longing for the Messiah to come, waiting hundreds of years for the prophecies to be fulfilled. And then Jesus arrives. He is already here. The most overlooked aspect of the good news is that we already have what we are looking for. Jesus came to show us how to experience it. Coming to the place that I am now meant that I had to unlearn a lot of things. I had to unlearn what I thought I knew, and I had to embrace the mystery of a God who cannot be boxed in. In so many ways, my story mirrors that of the story, the story of Scripture, because that's the trajectory of the Bible as a whole. What starts out as a list of rules for a particular group of people eventually becomes the good news for all people. Scripture is telling the story of this ever-expanding love that goes beyond the originally established boundaries. So tonight, I want to tell you what I wish someone had told me. Do not fear the process of learning that you were wrong. God is simply writing you a new story. Move forward in the knowledge that you have always been loved from the very beginning, just as you are, and so is everyone else. Beloved, you belong to the God who comes near to you.
I think Maggie's words are fantastic. When you look at the woman at the well and what she thought God would be, that God had to be in the temple, she never knew that she would be face to face with God at the well on that hot afternoon. And maybe that's something that you're going through right now as well, is that you've assumed that where you meet God is somewhere that you can't be. But I think that's exactly what we do in the, in the Eucharist, is, is we meet God here. It's right here. So together, the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. And together, let's say the Lord's Prayer. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.